Thank you very much. Hope you all enjoyed that snow. Yeah, you know, the Bible talks a lot about snow. Uh, Israel has snow all the time in the winter, and the Bible mentions snow probably uh, 40 or 50 times. And the most, you know, one of the verses you know about, though your sins be as scarlet, remember that one? <laughs> How do you think Isaiah came up with that, though she should be white as snow, huh? Had he lived in Florida or something, he wouldn't have known about that. So snow is a big thing in Israel. Now, uh, take your Bibles and open up to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, for those of you who are just joining us this week, we're going to give you a little uh, 30-second overview or synopsis of what we've covered so far. When you find Daniel, you go to Daniel chapter 1. It talks about the Babylonian captivity how Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians invade the southern kingdom of Judah and take the Jews' captivity. One of those who are taken captive is Daniel. He is uh, drafted, in a sense, into the king's service, and he is made the head of the Chaldeans, or the chief magician or advisors of the king. And Daniel, the scripture says, is given great wisdom from God. Now, the other wise men are following the Iraqi or the Babylonian gods, and they don't have the wisdom that Daniel has. Then in chapter 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a great statue, head of gold, arms and chest of silver, legs of bronze, and feet of iron and clay. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, asks all of his advisors what this dream or vision means. They cannot give him an answer. Daniel comes forth and with the wisdom of God explains that the head on the idol or the head on the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees is the Babylonian Empire. The chest is made up and arms represent the Medo-Persian Empire that will defeat Babylon. The legs represent Greece under Alexander the Great that will defeat the great uh, Medo-Persian Empire and the feet represent the uh, represents the Roman Empire that will eventually take over the world. And so Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar the answer to his vision. Then chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, about 30 years later, this is now we have a big jump, big gap in time, decides to build an idol, and he requires everyone to bow down to the idol. He probably fashions it after the statue in his dream. Three Hebrew children decide that they're not going to bow down. But we discovered they're not children, are they? No, they're like in their 30s, mid to late 30s. And so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. But there's a fourth man in the furnace. We believe that it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, and they're protected. Then chapter 4, we have another dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and he dreams of a tree that reaches into the sky. And there appears to him a being called a watcher that we know is an angel. And the watcher in the dream says, cut down the tree and only leave a stump. Nebuchadnezzar says, what does this dream mean? He can't sleep at night. He's troubled by the content of the dream. It seems to be something ominous ominous that's going to happen in his kingdom. He goes to his wise men. They appeal to their gods. No answer. He calls Daniel. Daniel, through being filled with the spirit of the true and living God, says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree, and you're going to be cut down the side, and you're going to end up like an animal eating hay in the field, and you're going to do that for seven years, and indeed that comes to pass. 
And that's chapter 4. Chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar has now died. Belshazzar is the new king of Babylon. And he decides to have a party because this new empire, world power, the Medo-Persian empire, invades Babylon and he somehow is able to fight them back. And he thinks that he's defeated them and so he throws a big beer blast, you know, big party. And it goes late into the night. And in his drunken state, he calls for the holy vessels that have been captured from the temple of Israel to be brought out and fill all those vessels with wine. And he says, now let's drink, eat, and be merry. And he commits an act of sacrilege by taking these godly vessels that were in the Jewish temple. And he desecrates them. And when he does it, in the midst of his drunken state, suddenly there appears behind him on a wall a hand that starts writing. And it writes four words. Meany, meany, tickle, you farson. He calls for his wise men. He says, what does that mean? What does that mean? And they cannot give him any advice. And so his mother comes in, the queen mother. And she says, well, there was a man who used to work for your father, Nebuchadnezzar. He's old now. He's into his 70s. But he was a man who was filled with the one true and living God. I believe he can give you an answer. So he calls Daniel and he says, if you can give me the answer, tell me what those words mean. I'll give you one third of my kingdom. And so Daniel says, here's what it means. It means your kingdom is going to fall. And the king is shocked by that. But since Daniel was able to give the answer, he said, uh, he said, okay, I'm going to give you a third of the kingdom. Within one hour, the Medes and the Persians reattacked Babylon, and Babylon fell within the hour. So now we have a new king and a new empire that's set up on the scene. And if you look at the end of chapter 5, you'll see that it says, look at chapter 5 and verse 30, it says this, And that very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the king, kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so Babylon is fallen. The head of gold has given way to the chest and the arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. And Darius controls that territory. Now there's another king by the name of Cyrus. He's a Persian. And he controls the regions beyond. So you have a Medo king and a Persian king in this empire. Darius, the Medo king, and Cyrus, the Persian king. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 6, you'll see both of their names mentioned in the same verse. And so Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. But we're going to deal basically with this guy, Darius, because now he has taken over the government and now he has to set up his administration. Just as a new president comes in, he has to choose a secretary of state. He has to choose a secretary of transportation. He has to choose who his White House counsel is going to be, who his chief of staff is going to be. So Darius the Mede is setting up his government. And so look at the organization of his government in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 6. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 
satraps to be over the whole kingdom. These would be like regional representatives, what we would call like senators or something like that. And over those 120, he placed three governors of whom Daniel was one. So here's Daniel in his mid-70s, and when the new government, new administration comes in, he keeps his job, and he is given leadership over one-third of the new Medo-Persian Empire. So that's very interesting. Now, what is the purpose for all this administration? Well, we find out at the end of verse 2. It says, he made them satraps and governors, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. In other words, the king has this chain of command that he set up, 120 satraps, three governors of which Daniel's one. These satraps will run their regions. They'll give an account to Daniel and the other two governors. And the purpose is, it says, so that the king would suffer no loss. This is a chain of command that is going to guarantee accountability that the government is run correctly. Now, suffering loss. What kind of loss? Well, make sure that the king doesn't suffer financial loss. He doesn't suffer political loss. You know, right now, President Bush is suffering all kinds of loss, isn't it? Remember when President Clinton was in, he suffered loss. He suffered prestige because of things were happening in his office. And he had a crisis management team that would go right into, you know, right to work whenever there was a controversy. Because these guys who are at the top, guess what they want to do? They don't want to lose. They don't want to be overthrown. And in our government, you don't want to lose your office. You don't want the economy to go down. So guess what? If your Secretary of Treasury doesn't work, Paul O'Neill, guess what you do? You get rid of him. That's how you do it. Because things, the guy at the top doesn't want to suffer loss. Now that's just common sense. So when you think of this in light of what's happening here, You'll understand that. Now, guess what? A year passes, and now we have the annual evaluation. It's like you get an evaluation on your job. And look what it says in verse 3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps. He, the word distinguished means glittered. He glittered. He, he outshined the others in those offices. Now, look at the reason why. Verse 3, because of the excellent spirit, an excellent spirit was in him. And that means because this man had character. This man had integrity. His word was his bond, and he just stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And look at the result at the end of verse 3. And the king gave thought of setting him over the whole realm. He was going to make him prime minister of the entire empire. The only person more powerful 
would be the king himself. Well, guess what happened? When the king makes it known that he's considering making Daniel the prime minister, jealousy arises. And there is a plot conceived against Daniel. And it's a conspiracy. They don't let the king in on this. This is a conspiracy. And you see it in verse 4. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel. You know what that means, don't you? That means they're going to dig up some dirt. Does that sound familiar? Well, I wonder if he really did serve in the National Guard. I wonder if Kerry really did have an affair with an intern for two years. See, that's the nature of politics, isn't it? You need to dig up the dirt. And so we're going to hire a special investigator, and we're going to investigate this guy. So this is the plot that they have going. Now, this conspiracy, this investigation, is going to take place on two fronts. Look in the middle of verse 4. It says, they're going to find some charge against Daniel. Number one, concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. So first, there's going to be an investigation of his public life. His public life. So what they do is they interview his staff. They subpoena his phone records. They subpoena his emails. They put a mole in his office to to find out whether he takes bribes. They're going to investigate his public life, but guess what? They could find nothing against him. He was squeaky clean. And so now the investigation takes place on another front. They're going to investigate his private life. wonder what he does behind closed doors. Yeah, look at the end of verse 4. Nor was there any error or fault or fault found in him. Oh. So they can't find anything about him. He never made a racist statement. Paid his taxes. You know, he's done all the things right. Never plagiarized the doctoral dissertation. You know, any of those kinds of things. Had no affairs. No skeletons in his closet. He is absolutely blameless. Now, this is what God expects from Christians who serve in government positions. God expects us to represent him and represent him well. And we would do well to learn that lesson. Now, I want to show you something that I think is absolutely fantastic. Because Daniel is mentioned somewhere else in another Old Testament book. So I want you to keep your finger here, and I want you to turn back to the book of Ezekiel. You're only going to have to go back uh, one book, okay? And find Ezekiel chapter 14. Now, throughout our lesson, I'm going to turn you to three passages other than the Daniel passages, and this is the first one. And when you get to Ezekiel chapter 14, I want you to look at verse 12. Verse 12, Ezekiel 14 and verse 12. The word of the Lord came to me saying, now this is Isaiah or Ezekiel speaking. The word came saying, son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch my hand against that land. I will cut off its supply of bread 
send famine on it and cut off man and beast from it. Now look at this next verse. This is the interesting. Even if these three men, Noah, <laughs> Daniel, and Job were in it. Look at that. I am gonna, if their land is unfaithful, I'm gonna cut it off even if they had a Daniel in it, a Job in it, and a Noah in it. Look what it says. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. And so, Ezekiel the prophet, as he's writing and speaking on behalf of God, uses Daniel as an example of what it means to be righteous. A righteous man in secular government. And then Job, a righteous man in the midst of suffering. And Noah, a righteous man in the midst of a totally perverse generation. So I thought that was sort of an interesting verse. So let's go back to Daniel. That's just a little aside. So uh, they investigate Daniel, his public life and his private life, and they find nothing. And so then guess what they do? They seek another approach. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So what they're saying is, if we cannot exploit his weaknesses, because he doesn't have any, what we'll do is we will exploit his strengths. We will exploit his spiritual commitment to God. We'll paint this guy as some religious fanatic. We'll use the very law against him, the very God that he serves against him. We'll make this guy look like some right-wing fanatic. Isn't that what they do? If you're squeaky clean and you're in government and they can't find any dirt on you, what are they going to do? Try to make you look like you're a religious fanatic. And they'll say, well, he's part of Jerry Falwell's right-wing fundamentalist conservative movement. Isn't that what they want to do? They want to sort of paint you with that kind of a stroke. And so that's what they do. The plot's conceived. Now the plot is instituted. Look in verse 6. And so these governors and satraps thronged before the king and they said to him long live the king king Darius live forever all the governors of the kingdom wait a second all the governors of the kingdom I don't think Daniel's in on this little thing is it all the governors of the kingdom the administrators the satraps the counselors the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den. So what they're saying is that, king, what we think is that you need to have a loyalty law passed that says for the next 30 days no one can bow down to any god and worship any god except you. Now this is their plot, okay? They're going to try to use Daniel's religion against them. Now, if they do that, if they break the law, king, look what happens. They're cast into where? The den of lions. Now, notice that the den of lions has now replaced the fiery furnace as the means of capital punishment. 
Now, this is their means of capital punishment. You know, in our society, I can remember growing up in the state of Maryland, they would hang people. And if you were guilty, it says, and you shall hang by your neck until dead. And then they had the electric chair and then the gas chamber. Now they inject people. Well, this was the form of capital punishment, throwing you into a den of lions because no one had ever survived a lion's den. No one. It was the foolproof capital punishment. And the reason they were not still using the fiery furnace is because the Medes and the Persians worshipped the god of fire. And they thought if you burned a person in fire, that was sacrilege to their god. So they stopped using that form of capital punishment. And they went to the, to the den of lions form of capital punishment. And so look at verse 8. Now, O king, establish the decree. Sign the writing. They put a bill right in front of him here. You know, let's sign this bill in the law. Sign the writing so that it cannot be changed. Now watch that phrase. So it cannot be changed. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Now, the Medes and the Persians followed a legal system that said if the king signed his name on a bill and put his signet ring, put his seal on that bill, it could never be changed. That law could not be altered. It was set in stone. That was known as the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so what they're asking him to do is to write and sign an irrevocable law. Now, we have organizations today that, that, that follow a practice similar to this. For example, the Roman Catholic Church has uh, beliefs that are called dogmas. Dogmas. You've heard of dogmas. One of the dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church is that Mary ascended into heaven. That's a dogma. And a Roman Catholic dogma is a doctrine that cannot be changed, not even by the Pope himself. So if the Pope says, I've decided to say that we don't believe that Mary ascended into heaven, he can't do it. Because they're following a law very similar to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once it is set in stone, it can never be changed. And that's one of the strengths, and maybe at the same time, one of the weaknesses of the Roman Catholic Church. And therefore, verse 9 says, the king, King Darius, signed the written decree. Now, why is he signing it? Well, he's signing it because these are his advisors. And they're saying, king, you want everybody to be loyal to you? You don't want to suffer any loss? This is a great idea sign it. And so he signs this loyalty law into effect. Didn't uh, Hitler have something like that? I mean, Hitler had loyalty laws too. And if you didn't follow what Hitler said, you know, you were put to death. Now, there's only one problem is that this is a lie. All the governors have not been in on it. Of course, Daniel wasn't in on it. And they are doing it for ulterior motives. That's hard to believe that they would use the king as a pawn for all their own ulterior motives, but they do. And it happens every day in politics. Everybody is playing everybody in politics. And so here's the plan is instituted. Now it's executed. Look at verse 10, the plan being executed. Now when Daniel knew the, the writing was signed, he knew the loyalty law went into effect. Guess what he did? He went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day. And he prayed and he gave thanks before his God 
as was his custom since early days. Then these men, that's the bad guys, assembled and they found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Now Daniel knows the law has been put in effect, but guess what? Doesn't deter him one bit. He knows that he's being set up. He knows that this is a trap. But guess what else he knows? He also knows that this is a test. From a human standpoint, it's a trap. But from a godly standpoint, it's a test. And sometimes God just tests you, doesn't he? He wants to see what you're going to do in a certain situation, whether you're going to compromise your values, whether you're going to compromise your convictions. <clears throat> so don't, you know, you have people at work. I mean, let's don't mention names, but there are people in this class that just recently had people who turned on them and an individual lost a job because of things that were said. And there were people who were jealous. They were trying to spring a trap. But guess what? This individual was actually being tested by God to see if he would remain faithful to his conviction. Some of you know who I'm talking about. And guess what? He remained true to his conviction. So when you get in a mess, don't assume that it's always the devil trying to trap you. Sometimes it's God testing you just to see what you're made out of. And <laughs> don't blame the devil, that's right. Now notice three things here. Notice in verse 10, it says he went into the upper room with his window open, with his windows open toward Jerusalem. Now the reason Daniel prays toward Jerusalem is because in Chronicles 6, that's how, Dan, that's how Solomon prayed, and since that time, that's how every Jew has prayed. They've always prayed toward Jerusalem, where the temple used to sit. So that's very important that you realize that. Then, a second thing I want you to notice, I want you to notice in verse 10, that he prays three times. Three times. And the reason he prays three times is because in Psalm 55, David, King David, prays three times. And since the time of David, Jews every day would pray three times during the day. And then it says, finally, at the end of the verse, he did this as was his custom. This was his lifestyle. So he's not going to change his lifestyle and his devotion to the Lord just because some law has passed. He would rather obey God rather than man. And so his whole life is characterized by prayer. And the reason Daniel doesn't fear man is because Daniel fears God. And if you fear God, guess what? You'll do what God wants you to do, not what man wants you to do. Now, he could have rationalized this thing. He could have said, well, I can still pray in my heart, and they won't even know it. But guess what he does? He opens these windows so they know it. Now, he could have rationalized, it's only 30 days. I'll just stop for 30 days. I'll pick up on the 31st day, because at that point, the law will no longer be in effect, because it's only a 30-day law. He could have done that, but he doesn't. It says he immediately went right home. As soon as, the, as soon as the thing was signed, isn't that what it says? Look, when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went home. Just like that. He said, hey, I better start praying right now. 
And he could have said, he could have rationalized, you know, if I pray, I'm going to lose my job as this, my new appointment as governor. And all the Jews that are here in the kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, are going to lose their voice, their one voice in the government. So I better just give in because if I don't, they're going to throw me in a lion's den. I'm going to die, and it's better red than dead. Huh? Right? You've heard that. So he could have done that, but he doesn't do that. Now let me ask you this. What would you do? if a law like that were passed today in America? Would you pray, but would you pray with your shades closed? <laughs> How would, would you do? Would you do the same thing that Daniel is doing? You know, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was thrown in jail for preaching the gospel because he wasn't part of the state church in England. And he was a good man. And... He was thrown in jail and they came to him and they said, if we let you out, will you promise not to preach? He said, you let me out, I'll preach. He says, you let me out tomorrow, I'll preach tomorrow. And then they said, well, we're, you're going to be in jail for a long time. And he said, well, whenever you let me out, I'll start preaching again. And then they said, well, you'll be in here the rest of your life. And he said, even if moth grows over my eyelids, I will preach every chance I get. And he ended up in the Bedford prison for years. And they were tempting him. Stop preaching and we'll let you out. You'll have your freedom. But God was testing him. It was during those years that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. So God puts us to the test. So don't always think that, you know, it's just evil against us. Sometimes there's a divine plan in all of this. And so we're to obey God rather than man. So They've checked up on Daniel. He's praying. Now look what happens. Now we have the prosecution. Look at verse 12. And they went before the king and they spoke concerning the king's decree, the one he had just signed. They said, you have signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, that's true. That's true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Well, we can't reverse that law. And once he said that, they answered and said before the king, that Daniel, you can always hear the disdain and the contempt, that Daniel, who was one of the captives from Judah. Can you sense that racism there? That Jewish Daniel, that's the one we're talking about, does not show due respect to you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but he makes his petitions three times a day. Now look at verse 14. And the king, when he heard these things, was greatly displeased with Daniel. Is that what it says? He was greatly displeased with himself because he realizes he's been duped. But the law of the Medes and Persians says that it cannot be reversed. And so he has fallen into their trap. Have you ever done that where you've been duped and you you say something when you shouldn't or you do something when you shouldn't and then later you can kick yourself? Well, that's exactly where the king is. He realizes that. He's very displeased with himself. Verse 14 says, and look what he did next. 
And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He tries every, he hunts for every loophole, every means possible, so that Daniel will not have to be executed. And he can't. He can't find anything. The sun goes down and he hasn't found any loopholes in the wall. Now look at verse 15. Then, as the sun goes down, these men approached the king and they said to the king, Know, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree or statue which the king establishes may be changed. And they're saying, you know, the sun's going down, and one of the laws of the Medes and the Persians was if a person was found guilty of a capital offense, they had to be executed on the very day that they committed the crime. They didn't give a, they weren't given a fair trial. <laughs> and so, uh, they're just reminding him, this Daniel has to be executed tonight. Okay? So now we have the execution, the punishment of Daniel, and we see the king's decree. Now look at verse 16. So, in light of that, King didn't have any choice. He gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. There's nothing the king can do at this point. But the king spoke saying to Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Now, at first it looks like when you just read it in English, it looks like it means that this guy has faith that God's going to deliver him, but that's really not the case. Now remember I told you that these chapters are written in Aramaic. These aren't even written in Hebrew. Aramaic was the language of the Babylonian people. And so all the people that live in this region are speaking Aramaic. A lot of Jews in this region. A lot of the Jews in this region eventually go back and they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And those Jews are still speaking Aramaic when they go back. And guess what? 700 years later, 600 years later, when Jesus, walking the streets of Jerusalem, his native tongue is Aramaic. Jesus is still speaking the language of the Babylonian Empire. Now, in the Aramaic language where he says, he will deliver you at the end of verse 16, this is what's called an imperfect verb, and it speaks of obligation, and it would probably better be read this way. The God you serve, he will have to deliver you. Because I can't. That's what it means. So you need to understand what it means. Not that he's a man of faith. He's saying, at this point, it's out of my hand. Your God's going to have to deliver you because I can do nothing about it, and it breaks my heart. Now look at verse 17. Verse 17. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. So it reminds you of what Pilate did, doesn't it? That the stone was put in front of the tomb and it says, and Pilate sealed the stone and so here we have Daniel in the den the stone is there guards are there the seal is put 
It cannot be reversed. Now, this is one of the things, those of you who have been with me for the whole series will understand what I'm saying at this point. This is one of the weaknesses of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, remember, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the head was of gold. That represented Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. The arms and the chest were silver, representing the Medo-Persian Empire. And remember we said that silver is weaker than gold. Gold is stronger than silver. And this is one of the weaknesses of the Medo-Persian Empire, that they have this law that cannot be altered. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar following this rule? He said, I'm king. If I want to change a law, I'll change a law. See, he would have never put up with this foolishness. But this king, some of his strength has been taken away from him because of the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And so he's weak in this sense. Now look what happens in verse 18. Now the king went to his palace. Daniel's been executed. And he spent the night fasting. Now that doesn't mean he's religious. This means he lost his appetite. Okay? <laughs> no magician, uh, musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. In other words, he's lost his appetite. He, he eats no snacks. He doesn't watch television. He doesn't turn on the stereo. He's absolute, absolutely miserable. He has insomnia. He can't sleep all night long because of what he's done. It really bothers him. Now look at verse 19, because now we're going to see what happens the next morning. Then the king arose very early in the, in the morning, and he went in haste to the den of the lions. And when he came to the den, he cried. He cried out with a lamenting voice. Daniel! With a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke saying, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you continually serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Now he's not expecting a, a positive answer here. Okay, this is just, he's hoping against hope. You know, maybe something's happened, but he doesn't expect a positive answer. Now we know our president, Glenn Sewell, read just a few moments ago Daniel 3.17 when the Hebrew children were thrown into the fiery furnace they said our God is able they answered Darius's question because Darius's question is this has your God been able and the three Hebrew children said our God is able okay now so he's has this lamenting voice in other words he's grieving and he's speaking to a dead man. Just like David says to Absalom after he dies, he says, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, Absalom doesn't hear him. He's dead. And that's what he's doing. He's, in a sense, speaking to a man who's just been executed. And he said, oh, Daniel, Daniel. That's what he's doing. Well, can you imagine this? There's a voice that comes out of the den. Daniel said to the king, Long live the king! <laughs> I mean, that must have shocked him. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't expecting that. And then verse 22, it says, My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not 
hurt me. Now, somehow you get a sense that Daniel had a better night than the king, don't you? I think Daniel probably slept all night like a baby, but the king was miserable. And why? Because it says he sent his angel or a messenger. <laughs> just like, just like, uh, the Hebrew children, there was a fourth man in the fire. Well, guess what? There was a second man in the den. And Daniel wasn't afraid of the lions because the lion of the tribe of Judah was in the den with Daniel. And so God, indeed, is able. And Daniel gives this calm response. And look what he says. He says, I haven't been hurt because... Now watch this. First of all, because he said, I'm innocent of the crimes charged. Look at this. Because I was found innocent, number one, before him. I'm innocent before God. And number two, and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. I'm innocent before God, and I'm innocent before man. And God spared me because of my innocence. And then second reason that God spared him was because of his faith. Now, I want you to jump down to the end of verse 23, where it starts with the words, So Daniel. You'll see that right in the middle of verse 23. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him. Now, here's the second reason. Because he believed in his God. He was spared because he was innocent, and he was spared because of his faith. Now, this is the second place I want you to turn today in our lesson. Keep your finger here, and I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Because this event was so powerful, a reminder in the mind of Ezekiel that he wrote about it, and it was so powerful in the mind of the writer of Hebrews that he too wrote about it, even though they were both writing, you know, 700 years apart. Now look at Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11. And you know, in verse 30 it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, by faith Rahab. That's verse 31. This is Hebrews 11, 30 and 31. <clears throat> and then they mention a whole bunch of people in verse 32. Gideon, Barak, Samson, you know, so on and so forth. Look at verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms. By faith, subdued kingdoms. By faith, worked righteousness. By faith, obtained promises. By faith, what? Stop the mouths of lions. By faith, quenched the violence of fire. Now, those two references right there go right back to the book of Daniel. It shows you that if we put our faith in the Lord, He indeed is able. And so the writer of Hebrews says, this is important that you understand that these were people of faith. They trusted in the one true and living God. Now let's look at the king's response, okay? <clears throat> look at his reaction. When he hears Daniel say, long live the king. Now look at verse 23. Now the king was exceedingly glad. Look at his first reaction. He's glad for him. And he commanded that they should take Daniel out of the den. And so Daniel was taken out of the den. And no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in God. Number two, not only is he glad, look, he's mad. Look at verse 24. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men 
who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Before they hit the bottom, just like that, they just pounced on them and got them. That shows you how ferocious these lions were. What a shock. What a shock for these conspirators. There's a knock on the door at 6 in the morning. And there's the king's men. And they think that they're going to report the plot worked. Daniel's dead. But instead, they say, the king wants to see you. And they're thrown in the lion's den. I mean, this is the irony of the story. Now we have the proclamation of the king. As we wind down, look at verse 25. The king then wrote to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And so he now makes a new proclamation that people must fear before the God of Daniel. And he gives five reasons to fear God. This pagan man gives five reasons to fear God. Number one, he's not made of wood. Look at that. For he is the living God. Number two, you can always count on him. And he is steadfast forever. He never wavers. He's always trustworthy. Number three, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. He never loses a battle. Number four, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He's going to rule eternally. His kingdom has an, is an eternal kingdom and he will always rule. And then five, because this God is supernatural. He delivers and he rescues. And he works signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lion. And so God does what no man can do. And he's the one indeed who should be.